This is Paul, but you should start calling me Machine Gun. This is Caroline, still going by Caroline. We're here to talk about the sixth and seventh episodes of Defending Jacob, the new drama from Apple TV Plus, starring Chris Evans, Michelle Dockery, and others. It has been a dramatic, slow build up to this point, but now can't wait for episode eight. I couldn't not watch seven after I watched six. It was it was like I needed to know. I needed to keep going. And now I'm like on pins and needles about what happens in eight. I am in the same boat, Paul, over here at Pins and Needles Alley, worrying about when is we going to find out what happens in eight. First, let's talk about six and seven, though. Okay. Big stuff happens in both episodes. Just overall... This is a something that happens in both episodes, the impact of grandpa in the story. This is a real nature-nurture question for me, Paul, about whether or not having a killer grandpa would make me feel differently about this situation as a jury member or even just as a parent, you know? What do I think matters more? I think for the most part, I would love to think that nurture matters more. Because it scares me to think that we're predestined in some way to be a specific way that kind of eliminates everything like free will and choice and willpower and trying and all those things. So it scares me the idea that your nature determines everything. But I also very much believe that your DNA carries a whole lot of information beyond even what most people understand in terms of personality traits and Memories, I've heard. You know, I don't know if you've watched Frozen 2, but water carries memory. Oh. We're mostly water, so I kind of think that our when we gush out into back into the, you know, earth and our DNA goes again, I kind of feel like, you know, there's memories there, Paul. If, yes. I, if I were on the jury and I heard that, I would like to think that, you know, the next piece of evidence that Joanna would come up with would be like, He's never met his grandfather. Joanna does say he's he has never met the grandfather. I think I'd be like, well, okay. But that's where it comes down to the DNA part, the nature-nurture. Like, are you just predestined due to your DNA strands, water having memory, that, you know, your guts are going to drive you to, to be real stabby? Uh, to follow up on that discussion, let's skip up to the stuff with Dr. Vogel. Let's just run down everything about her. It's important to remember that Dr. Vogel was hired by the defense. She works for the defense. She doesn't work just to prove objectively whether or not Jacob is prone to killing people or not. She is paid to say, no, he's not. But all the stuff that was said about not having the murder gene, but yes, having limited empathy, yes, having impulse control, and then just her just her demeanor throughout the thing and not being able to, to look Lori in the eye and talk to her and give her an, the, the answers that Lori wanted. Does that say anything to you as, as a viewer? Well, I can say as a parent that I would be extremely frustrated with this visit because I understand that there's some point in holding back certain amount of information if we were in a court of law, okay? But I'm his mom and I'm asking you what those test results say. I think that I deserve transparency in those. If we go through them and I submit to my child going through testing, 
there is no point in time that I can think of that I would have okayed. Like, how about you just tell me some of the test results, but it's okay if you choose not to tell me the rest. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I assume I'm paying the lawyer who's paying Dr. Vogel. I feel like those results are mine and and they should be explained to me to my satisfaction. That's a good point. I mean, I, I felt very put off by the doctor's dodging. Well, it's tricky, right? If you have negative information that we can only assume Dr. Vogel has, right? Because we saw that he did not cringe to those torture scene pictures and, and just what we've picked up about Jacob. You know, he there are differences about him that are notable. Would you want to be told? Like, was she trying to spare their feelings? And is that acceptable? Or when, when it comes to medical information, there's no, you can't let emotions rule. You've, you've got to know the facts. But on the other hand, there's two parents in the room. Mm-hmm. And one of those parents didn't seem to give a shit about any of it. He found out he had the murder gene, in fact, and was like, meh. You know, though, I think in a case like that, it a little bit makes me think of like when they when they ask you if you want to know if it's a boy or a girl. If one parent wants to know and the other parent doesn't want to know, they don't just not tell you. They say, well, we can put it in this envelope and we can give it to your doctor or we can give it to you or however you want to handle it. But they don't just deny you the information point blank. If I was Lori, I would look at Andy and say, anything that you don't want to be a part of in this meeting, you are welcome to wait in the waiting room just like I have for hours and hours on end when these tests were being taken. Okay, you can go stare at the painting out in the waiting room for a while, but I want to know the results. So I feel like having been in those situations where there is mom and dad and there is information that you can choose to know or not, I do not feel like the doctor ever just says like, well, since dad doesn't want to know, my hands are tied. Like, what the hell is this? I would imagine this was a painful trial. I don't mean like the trial in court. I mean, like for the parents and the family dealing with the doctor. Go, to have to go through, but I think none of it's going to matter in court. For whatever happens in eight, I don't know what it's going to be, but I don't think any of this is going to matter in court. I think it may drive something that Lori decides to do, which we can discuss later, but I think it was just more of a, to bring up this nature-nurture question and really add some 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 shading i guess to to the to the gray areas there. i think it was important in terms of the show showing some like legitimacy in the process because i think that there's very few situations where uh, a psyche valve of some sort wouldn't be done you know so i think that this was an important part i am questioning why the prosecution would not also have a psyche valve. Seems like they could. And if you had one on the defense side, isn't the prosecution allowed to do that just like like sharing of evidence kind of thing. Um, I forget what it's called. I feel embarrassed. I don't to say think it like so. That, but because I mean, they can cross examine, but but the defense is. Is it only the other way? The defense is allowed to ask for any amount of evidence. Like they were able to right. able to ask for Ben's cell phone, but that does not go the other way, right? Prosecution doesn't get to go through the defense's clues or evidence. And I think that's right. And in this case, I mean, this is a paid expert for the defense. Which that's how I guess one of the tools a defense attorney has available to them is paying and hiring experts that are just there to present the side of the evidence that defends the client. Right. Okay. So so that's it. Guess what I'm asking you is like, what will what will Joanna do with Dr. Vogler? Like, will she try to 
put her on the stand? Because that seems like a big uh, no. Well, I think I think this report would only hurt what they're doing. I have to imagine it would. Okay, so he doesn't have the murder gene, but he has a lot of other things that aren't great. Yeah. That's what Lori responded to. Absolutely. Earlier in the season, we had seen that Jacob had created this sock account so that he could log into things as this alternative person, Jay Cobbs. Andy finds out about it and goes nuts on him. But then that's it. Are you questioning the lack of follow through on Andy's part? Or are you questioning like, why didn't he? I, and when I say that, I guess I mean like discipline wise or or sorting through the computer wise. That's what I mean. When I saw that they, they go through all this, he cries and says he's sorry, which he seems to do every time they have a confrontation. They still leave him with the computer. Yeah. I would leave him with no access to the internet personally for a million reasons. He's made so many bad choices. Not only that, but to be honest with you, even a very reasonable adult would have a very difficult time not Googling the trial, not looking up news articles. You know, even if you were just trying to like go and look at just the regular news, your stuff would pop up. I mean, from what I hear, people like celebrities, like they don't go on at all because it's just too much. Mm-hmm. I think he should have taken that computer away, though. Oh, agreed wholeheartedly. There is there's no good of him having it. What is the pro of the 15 year old at this point having a laptop with the Internet? Why? At this point, his one friend comes over when when she can. That would that would have to do it. Well, and maybe you could allow like text, you know, still without allowing Internet access. Right. Uh, that gets dicey. But that gets, you understand what yeah, I'm saying. Kids are smarter than us when it comes uh, to that stuff. That's sad, but true. Still, there, there must be ways that he could interact with Sarah that would be on the up and up. Can I tell you, you know, speaking of Sarah? Yeah. In these two episodes, once again, we have moments where Sarah does come back in on the scene, which I was glad that he came back around and I was a little disappointed that he didn't apologize, but I guess he was at least nice back to her, right? My eyebrow was raised about how Lori, when she closed the door on the on the, their conversation, uh-huh. was like smiling to herself, like... Oh, my little boy has a girlfriend kind of thing. There's something about that that feels so inappropriate and out of place. I get it that maybe you feel like, okay, he he went back and, and I can only assume apologized to his friend because they were fighting, but it seems like they're talking now. So that seems good. But I, I don't understand the goofy, googly-eyed smiles out of Andy and Lori concerning Sarah all the time. Like, it, it feels like, why are you so wanting this like romance to be going on. I think there's that part of them that wants to resemble normalcy. Their son having a friend or a girlfriend would be some trace of normalcy. You know, so much of what Jacob is doing is is the opposite of good that this one this one thing that that he's doing that is resembling something normal is is uh the one thing that they can maybe be happy about, but I guess you'd have to kind of put yourself in this mindset of, of a parent that has waited two months or whatever between the incident and the trial, living day in and day out, sort of quarantined, if you were, um, and sort of that just seeing each other all day, running into each other. And, you know, on TV, we just get to see the parts that make a difference. In real life, you'd, you would go days and then finally Sarah would show up. The other thing that I'd say about clinging to normalcy is that I know that you can recall times when our life 
has been in kind of emergency, long-term emergency status, and that the things that rise to this point of, of making you smile are things that would be very mundane things. But the fact that they're happening during the emergency is like, yay. You know what I'm trying to say? I guess I'm shaking my head because for me, it feels out of place. And, and I, underst- I I do understand what you're saying about the normalcy part. If it was just a friend thing, maybe I would feel better. I don't know why I have the heebie-jeebs that it's a that it's the fact that it's a girl and it's like a girlfriendy, romancy kind of thing. I, I don't know why I get that vibe, but I do. And I think that, that there's something there that bothers me. I just don't know what it is. But I, I just want to share that. I don't know if you as listeners are feeling the same way. I don't want to layer in romance or sexuality of a teenager in with the storyline. Like it just feels off for me right now. Is it potentially that that you've learned that that Jacob clinically tests as a person who is not going to be a terrific partner for Sarah, limited empathy, etc. But then also in actions, we've seen that he will lash out at her and be a bad friend in general to Sarah? Is it just that you're feeling maybe protective of Sarah? That's an interesting insight that I had not considered. The idea that I don't want her to be a romantic mate for him because you're right. I I see that there's like a, like at least a start of some sort of abusive relationship between the two of them Mm -hmm. in which he certainly seems to just use her, you know, in a lot of ways. And I don't like that. And so maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm just feeling a little protective of her. But but I'm going to go back to the idea that in many ways, they sort of act like he's a child at some points in time. And so then in my head, like child and romance and sexuality, like I just don't want to, there's so many other things going on with the story that I just don't feel like I personally need to entertain that portion of the storyline. For me. And and the way that they do that, then Andy, who's like grinning, pointing at the door or or Lori, who's like grinning at the door. It, there's just something about it that feels, don't y'all have something else to think about? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I don't mean to belabor the point. I, it's just for, for me, something that stood out as my mind space would not be there, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I can say we have been in crisis and I have been in a situation where it has been our children. Now, the children were very young, but I can tell you that other people in our lives had romantic things going on and even their romantic things felt out of place and didn't have a space in my head for right. that. So in that case, if a friend's romantic stuff didn't have a place in my head, my child who's in peril's romantic life didn't have a place in my head. You know what I guess? I guess I does think that I, make I, better yeah, sense? Yeah, yeah, I can it's remember. It's not what I was thinking about. Your mind has only so much you can take in at once. And there's, <laughs> there, there are mission critical things and then there's everything else, right? Yeah, I think so. I think as parents who have been in crisis with our children, there's very limited bandwidth. And I do not believe my own bandwidth would include any room for what my child's romantic entanglements might be. In the words of Short Round, no time for love, Dr. Jones. There you go. Yeah. Or smirking about kids loving on each other. How about that? Even is that a gross thing? Like, do you remember we talked about last time about how Andy acted so blasé when Sarah's like, so I sent my nudes around. And Andy's like, mm, as one does, sister. And I was like, that seems out of place. Like, children's sexuality and romance shouldn't be something that makes us grin. There should be some part of us that feels a little uncomfortable. There are children. It's a little bit awkward. I'm open about sexuality. I talk about sex with our kids. At the same time, I don't grin. I'm not elated about, you know, watching it. 
it's that's not a thing, you know. Or I don't know. Maybe I sound crazy. No, you make good sense to me. <laughs> As fellow parent of these children, that's right. You're not interested in in, in high fiving when we think they've locked one in. Speaking of locked one in or not, Matt, he finally mans up and says, okay, I'll tell my story. This is a big deal because it paints Leonard in a pretty, Leonard Pats, in a, in a pretty dark light. However, this kid does not look like the most reliable guy in town. Um, and we find out in episode seven that, in fact, he does ditch. Right. He is the most reliable guy in Florida now. Did you smile when they said that he that he fled to Florida? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny because like on social media, whenever there's something silly, everyone's like this. Oh, Florida. Yeah. What are you up to over there? I don't know why Florida's like that. I don't know why they have that reputation. I don't know. Whatever. Like uh, on another show I was, I was watching, they go, where do mistresses come from? I want to say Tampa. <laughs> It's like that same thing. You're like, what's up with why does Florida get such a bad rap? But what, what's the trick? You know? Like, like any any given. If you type in your birth date and, you, and Florida, in Florida, man. yeah, just Florida, just Florida, and and your birth date, you will come up with some sort of insane. My thing is like, guy like poops in the Walmart like parking lot or something like that. And I'm like, oh, Florida. Unintentionally funny, maybe that that it, that they did that. But super disappointing though. Like like yeah. like, let's get down to it. Matthew was key to really starting to unravel the concept that Leonard had nothing to do with this and that, you know, he was really just this, I don't even know what we would describe him, just, you know, sort of guy hanging around boys, but we're not going to act like that's weird. I, I know that in this podcast, I've said the whole time that I thought Leonard had something to do with this. I feel like he's on the other end of that video game. I feel like he knows how to get across to boys. I know we're going to obviously discuss, you know, final moments of this, of episode seven, but he always stayed on my radar. And Mm -hmm. so when Matthew fell off of it, I was like, oh my God, like, how are we ever going to get that information into evidence? Very disappointing because your case, if you're the defense, you know, initially they said that, well, we don't need to make a defense. We just need, they, they have to prove that it's him. But you can say enough bad things about Jacob that in the minds of the jurors, well, all it has to do at that point is seem like, well, yeah, I guess he had enough reasons to, to do this. So and, and the kid's dead. So it's him. All they have to do is create reasonable doubt. Right. But yeah. given the circumstances currently, I don't know that you could have reasonable doubt. Maybe the prosecution has not explained to me exactly how it did happen or where the weapon is or those types of things. But given the facts I am given, I would say mm, it's fairly reasonable to think that this was the killer, that Jacob did do it. It makes this testimony pivotal. Oh my God, crucial. Because it says, no, wait, someone else had a reason to kill him. Now, Paul, I know you only play a lawyer on TV. However, let me ask you this. Had Andy had the forethought when he picked up the phone and he heard it was Matthew, if he had had an app, say like we do, called Tape-A-Call, if he had taped that phone call in which Matthew says a ton more, would that have been able to be used in a court of law or no? That's a great question because I don't know. I think so, but I don't know why the deposition that he took in front of the DA... Why wouldn't, wouldn't that be admissible? And, and yeah, I, I don't know. It might seem that having physical Matthew there would be the best case scenario. However, we've all met Matthew as audience members. He doesn't present well. And he comes off like a big fat freaking liar. Given that, wouldn't it just be 
better to give the jury like a written statement that they need to read with no chance of cross-examination. Prosecution can say this, I think this kid's a liar, but you have this little boy's, you know, I would put a younger picture of Matthew with it, (laughs) you know, like when he's wearing his like, you know, little league uniform or something. I would give that with with the printed up statement. I would think that would actually be ideal that Matthew's not available. I'm a lawyer who's going to see the silver lining, Paul. Okay. Okay. I'm the silver lining lawyer. (laughs) I'm going to work it in every which way. There's the Texas hammer and the silver lining lawyer. In machine gun daily. Yeah. (laughs) All Texas law practices. Paul really wants that to stick you guys. So as listeners, if you could at him, Paul V. Daly on Twitter, you know, hit him with a little machine gun. Yeah. Something like go machine gun, something like that. (laughs) Now, to be clear, Machine Gun, just as a as a happening name, not as like he thinks machine guns are a good idea to right. own or use. Exactly. He just thinks it's a hot name. They don't really have any place in no. the civilization, no. per se. But I need to be clear on that so people understand. You mean like, rat-a-tat-tat, you're so smart. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Speaking of Leonard Pats, Andy gets it in his in his head to stalk him rear ends his car and and kind of gets aggressive with him what's up andy what, what what's up with why, why are you doing this is it just frustration just boiling over yeah i gotta think that but but to what end i mean i i guess the intimidation factor but but wouldn't that just drive someone more underground or to go home and destroy other evidence potentially i mean you're a lawyer you know very well you know, when you're serving a search warrant, you don't want to go rerend the guy's car first and yell at him and then go serve a search warrant. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, you don't want any heads up. Given this whole situation, I just feel like there's no reason to alarm Leonard any more to the situation. If, if there's something that you can do to continue to look at him and stay a little more stealth, I think that's better. But I got to go with just losing your mind and and just honestly losing your temper. But that's the fucking point, Paul, right? Yeah. The point is, is it a family trait to take things too far? And in a case like this with Andy, yeah, he's taking it too far. You don't bash someone's car. For as viewers, we have to sit there and think, well, hold up. If it is nature nurture, this is the father he grew up with. You're telling me that this guy only acts this way at work and away from his family? Bullshit. (laughs) Jacob has seen his dad lose his mind in a variety of situations. I guarantee it. There's no way he's that controlled. So then in that case, he has seen people lose their temper. Good call. Shit, you're out on the nurture part too. You're making my voice do this. (laughs) (laughs) In the flash forwards, they mention the idea of a rush to judgment. If you were one of the Rifkin parents, would a quicker indictment have made you feel any better? Or would you have been like, well, in TV time, this was only like one day and then you found the killer. That that seems like maybe there was more to it than that. I don't think so, because I don't think that it actually went that slow. I know that Mr. Rifkin thinks it did, though. I mean, when he came tromping out to the search area and yelling at Andy, I mean, we know that his feeling is that this is all taking too long. Maybe we would all feel that way. If one of our children were to be ever in a situation like this, I can't imagine. Although I do, I have to say it this way, too. I feel like time would just melt away. If one of our children were found dead and and was murdered and this whole situation, I feel like time would have very little meaning to me. Mm Mm-hmm. 
if it was one day or three days or a week, and I'm speaking from experience, I don't even know that time would matter. It's it's a lot like this quarantine time in that like one day to the next doesn't really, you know, I jokingly said the sun goes up and the sun goes down and, and then and then the sun comes up again. But none of that matters because maybe I go to sleep when the sun's up, maybe I go to sleep when the sun's down. Like, I think I would get into that frame of mind of like, I don't know that I would note if it was three days or six days when you started telling me different information. That's me. Now, as a dad, do you do you feel like you would have a different grip on things? Well, I don't know about as a dad. I've, I can only look at things as a machine gun. Oh, okay. And, well, um, as a machine gun then? As a machine gun, um, <laughs> when if something like that happens, you've seen me. I get in a pretty low funk and it just sticks, you know? But I think that that's normal. Yeah. Like I would check out in a lot of ways. My that's mind would saying. go blank almost. That's what I'm saying. Just waking comatose almost, yeah. you know? But maybe for Mr. Rifkin, and, and I guess we've seen this too, the feeling of loss of control is just unacceptable. The only thing to do when you're maybe your wife is at home crying, you've lost your son. The only thing to do is lash out and go and be like, you need to find answers. And I know we've seen that on the news and stuff like that, where parents are like being like, you know, give us more information, get, get us answers, that type of thing. Yeah. I just know from my own self and, and listeners, you guys can say like, you know, I've never been in this. I think I'd be screaming about my son's killer and I'd want to know everything. And maybe that's true. And maybe other ones of you are saying, no, you know, I've been in a crisis too. I've been told something devastating and a week goes by before. Like, I feel like I even blink. My mind is just blank. I think that that line of questioning that Neil and everybody's doing about like, now how many days was Andy on the case and all this stuff? Like, I really thought that that seemed fruitless why wouldn't the assistant da be assigned to the case if that's the way they run the show up there then that's how they run the show which it is though but it it could have been either of them and the moment that it became apparent jacob was was a part of it really wouldn't you be looking at your as like the perpetrator of that mishap not andy forethought about the whole thing and somehow getting yourself in middle in the middle of the case i mean if you feel like you are trying to solve a murder and you feel like this is a murder of a child and you have a child, why wouldn't your first gut instinct be like, I want to go get him? Yeah. You know, I want to stop this. I thought that there, there was a ton of defense that was available to Joanna about this line of questioning. Speaking of feeling out of control, like Ben Rifkin's dad, what do you make of the blue Lincoln and the fact that it's being driven by a former muscle mobster guy? Do you think it's tied into Mr. Rifkin at all and his lack of control because I can't think of another way in for this mobster guy there doesn't seem to be another interest oh no I got you one just when you said that I have thought it was it was Ben Rifkin's dad this whole time but the other one who is showing immense interest in this case grandpa grandpa and grandpa has said in these two episodes I have connections and whatnot like he intimated some something okay. you know and so Go he on. he is the only other person that I I could think of and I honestly thought the entire time that it would have been Ben's dad for sure but I think this might be one of those times when this is a twisted sense of the grandpa is actually sending this guy to watch the house and probably said, don't let them know that I sent you because otherwise, you know, they're going to send you away or whatever. And I just want you to watch the house. And and if Lori leaves the house, follow her and make sure no, nothing happens to her because he met Lori 
Mm-hmm. And he felt like she was somebody to protect. It would not surprise me if that's how this twist turns out. Is that he, because he seems more, way more on that side of the coin necessarily than Mr. Rifkin. Mr. Rifkin could show up at court and stab everybody. That seems more like akin to the kind of anger he has than him reaching out to a hitman and or underground mafia guy and then just follow them around. I like your you theory. Know? I like it because the dude just adds menace and and, and it kind of artificially increases the stakes of their situation because there's this other agent kind of just lurking around. And that would, if you were in the middle of it, you'd, everything would feel more intense just because of that, you know? Yeah. He didn't want to show ID. He didn't want to really talk to Andy or talk to anybody or talk to, it's silly that he wouldn't somehow be able to say, I'm just looking out for them or whatever, because I guess a private citizen can feel like they're looking out for someone else. Like if our elderly neighbor was coming and going and we like watched her out the window and was like, oh, it looks like she got her mail safely and went back inside. I mean, there there wouldn't be that sense of that. But I think it's just this unknown, the factor that they won't, they're not saying who hired this guy or why uh-huh. he's there. But I think it's artificial. I honestly think at the end of the day, it's going to be grandpa sent Strictly for protection of the family. I like that theory so much that I am. I'm not going to try to poke holes in it. I think there's not enough story left for it to be something more complicated. And the way that Grandpa keeps calling and trying to get information and sort of saying like, "Please do whatever you can to keep him out of here" and stuff like that. I think he. I think he would do whatever he could to meddle in the situation. And that might be as small as thinking he's sending a goon to create some amount of security. Okay. And plus it's one of those things where it's a good thing shown in the wrong light got twisted up. Think that is going to be the point of this entire show. If you take something that could have been no big deal and you twist it in a certain way, it could be so malicious and so menacing it's not even funny. Well, that appears to be Neil's whole approach. Mm-hmm. Take anything that is just remotely just existing and try to twist it up. So do you think that that was part of the tutelage that Andy gave Neil while they were still friends? Sadly, yeah. And what a punch in the belly to feel like you're the one that taught the guy the tricks that are going to take your son down. It's just it's another little ironic twist to the mix that you're just like, mm. Neil is cunning. He is clever. He's trying everything he can, especially around this grandpa business. Like he had that, that was a long con that he had set up for that. Yes. And you're referring to when he starts poking at Andy when he comes into the police department and, you know, is going to go look at Ben's phone. That's the part. Yes, And and he lashes out because he's because he's basically like kind of like cat calling at him, you know, why I'm saying that that wasn't very clever at the end of the day is that everybody saw what he was doing. Like nobody was confused. The entire department already knew about grandpa when Andy walked in the doors. So then to have someone be like, nanny, nanny, there wasn't anyone there who didn't think, oh, he's trying to get a rise out of Andy. So in that case, I mean, I guess what you're saying is it doesn't really matter because the jury doesn't know that. And the fact that he did get a temper about it is enough to show That he has a temper. Basically. But I want to say, like, who wouldn't say, shut up, stop harassing me, Neil, (laughs) my my previous little mentee, like, come on, you ass. It would be hard to keep a stiff upper lip. 
but I get it. I get it because the because the scenario set up is that Ben harassed Jacob, and if harassed enough, what do barbers do? What do barbers do? They lash out. You know, and he did shove him up against the wall. I get it. I just I don't think that that's clever. I actually think it's kind of cliche. Then given that, do you think that getting it out of Duffy, getting her to say about the grandfather being in jail rather than trying to submit that as evidence on your own, is that do you give him credit for that? Ooh, credit's a weird word in that particular sense. I mean, the judge has already said that the grandpa information is not to be submitted in any way. And that he would shut it down and tell the jury not to listen to that. The, when it was told in that way and the judge had to say, you can't unring a bell. I can't. If I was Joanna, I would almost like throw this shit well, out. She tried. She said mistrial. Yeah, because the concept of unringing a bell is so true. And, and it's just like, this is someone's life. Like, this isn't like a, you know, like, oh, you're going to get a fine or something at the end of this. Like, this is too serious. And you would almost think that for the sake of appeals and stuff, the judge would say, you know, mistrial is right. And just bring me in 12 more new people and fuck this. If I was the judge, I would. Because I had already warned you. I already said, Neil, don't. Don't. <laughs> I'd find your ass and I would totally bring in a new jury and say, if you do it again, I assume there's some amount of like could take you off the case kind of thing. I don't know. It's a prosecution. I don't know what you could do. But you could probably at least admonish the district attorney's office in some way that where the DA would take you off the case. Probably. Probably. So when I'm a judge, this is how I will handle it. <laughs> once you're I'm very <clears throat> know it all of Once your silver lining careers is, is is has elevated to the point of judgeship. <laughs> judge it up all right I look, until I look then i'll just do it on podcasts <laughs> just judge on podcasts uh -huh, yeah i'm out late judge caroline Be like bring me your case mistrial get out of here can't unring a bell <laughs> i'm the john legend to your chrissy Teigen. okay yeah you kind of are aren't you yeah a little bit joanna comes over after and explains light passing through a prism and all this stuff Ooh. Was that metaphorical? Did I did my, you know, left brain block me from hearing that? Here's what I heard and tell me if you heard this differently. What I heard her say was that electrons behave in a certain way when they were passing through slits, I believe was the word she was saying. Okay. And when scientists stopped to isolate that situation and observe it, what they found was that when watched, electrons change their behavior. Which is boggling. And that's what Jacob was saying. He was like, no, what? That's crazy. I thought the bigger metaphor was when you're in private and you think no one is watching, you may do certain things, a.k.a. cutter rooms. Jake Hobbs. When you feel like someone is watching Andy Barber, you act in a different way. I mean, it really caught my attention because it seemed to come out of nowhere. Joanna didn't seem like the type of person to spout off scientific Science studies. Stuff, right? She seemed like such a much more down to earth, like personable person that it didn't seem like it would be the type of conversation you would have with a 15 year old boy. It seemed like she might actually be talking about movies or music or something like that with him to yeah. be more relatable. But there was some that that is what I got out of it. Now, if I misheard that study or if I misheard that story of what she was telling about the electrons, I apologize. But but that's what I gleaned is that when you're really scrutinized, your behavior changes into what you think that you you're supposed to be doing. Now, I don't know what she was doing in that. Like if that's what we're supposed to get as an audience member. Right. Let's say we're supposed to get Let's that. Let's say. 
Was Joanna trying to intimate that to Jacob? Like, is it possible that you, Jacob, are like an electron? And people are looking at you and you act one way, but when people aren't looking, you act another? Like, I didn't get that she was trying to get any information out of him. It seemed like they were just like being like, that's crazy. Science is weird. And like moving on. Yeah, but they gave so much screen time to it that it had to have more meaning, like you're saying. So I looked it up and this is what... It says observation affects reality. It's quantum theory demonstrated. Okay. Okay. It says, in other words, when under observation, electrons that are being quote unquote forced to behave like particles and not like waves, the quantum observer's capacity to detect electrons can be altered by changing its electrical conductivity or the strength of the current passing through it. Basically that by observing, you affect how something acts. So that alone is a fascinating thing. And so like, there's all these questions like, do electrons know they're being observed? (laughs) Apparently they do. I I find that so odd. But at the same time, I mean, if we're all made up of particles. So I think this is more foreshadowing the Job stuff as sort of like a corollary, right? If you act, if you act one way, if you act like a human being while you're being observed, when you're not observed, then the same if the, if you're going by these rules then you act another way so he acts acceptably in front of people but away from people he's writing murder stories let's talk about that murder story stuff for a minute because i did have pause on this we have kids who have ideas in their minds that can be very fantastical sometimes very silly and sometimes not i would never say that it would go to this level or anything like that but maybe things that they want to get off their chest Maybe feelings that they're feeling that it's not appropriate to yell at somebody. So instead, write a story in which you yell at that person and kind of get it off your chest. Okay. And I've always thought that that was a very acceptable way to handle your anger. Having said that, do you think that these Job stories were predictive of his behavior or were in fact a confession of his behavior? Or was it simply getting it off his chest? He was being bothered by somebody, and so he created this story. I'm going to add even an extra layer. And could someone else have read it and carried out the story framing him? Well, in this case, the story came out three days after the murder was given. That doesn't mean he didn't. He wrote it. That just means that's when he decided to publish it, I guess. Right. However, like I'm saying, Leonard Patz, in my brain, was a part of his circle before then. Just saying. Okay. I think your concept that that it is a way of getting this sort of situation off his chest is more like catharsis rather than a confession. I think that may be how this works out. It sucks because I really do honestly believe it could go either way. I do believe someone with guilt could write a fictitious story to be able to faux confess, right, and get it out there. And also, as a woman, Paul, there are books and movies and all kinds of stuff where you are supposed to write down what you would do to that ex-boyfriend. You take the voodoo doll and you poke him and you do all that kind of stuff. And then maybe you throw it in the fire and get rid of it. All those things, or, or you write a letter to the to the estranged person, and but you don't mail it, that type of thing. But then if you found that letter, you would say, oh, she just didn't have time to mail it, but look what she would have said. You know, it's like, no, but I've seen those as like therapeutic techniques. But this is more akin to O.J. Simpson's, if I would have done it. <laughs> yeah, yes. I'm with you. This was a struggle for me. The fact that his dad and his attorney had no idea this was coming they, there was nothing they could really do to stop and recollect themselves. Uh, they just had to live through that unprepared. And as a parent, I'd have been 
ragingly furious. And I, I would share both of those parents' doubts. After this court day, when, when that story comes out, the Job story comes out, that appears to be the first time Andy's ever said, did you do it? You know? Uh, well, because he couldn't allow himself to go there. If you admit that you're even questioning that, which, I mean, it, it does what I, what I, what the fear would be is that it, it then says, like, I'm capable of thinking you did it. On the other hand, if you are this kid's parent and he did it, are you casting him out of the house or are you rallying away to be like, well, there's got to be a really good reason why and we need to protect him as best we can knowing that? For my own self, I'm never the throw out of the house mom. I don't care what you did. Maybe because as parents, I think we have some amount of responsibility for our kids always into adulthood, whether it be the values I instilled in him or the the nurturing aspect or whatever part that I played, I feel like I would have played a part. So for me, I would rally behind them and say, you're right. This was a terrible thing that happened. Either they really had a good reason or B, they badly need help. Please support us in trying to find a way to help him or her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what that's what I'm getting at is that in our house, I think we would have asked right up front instead of just, like you oh, say, yeah. tap dancing around this hopes and, and well wishes and shit oh, like yeah. that. Um, I Because th- we could deal with it either way. We couldn't operate from ignorance, basically. Yeah. And we, it would drive me crazy. I think it is driving Lori crazy because she's having to deal with coming to a conclusion on her own without really knowing I think it's driving her nuts. If you're asking me the way that I think we would have approached this with our own kids, day one, situation one, we would have said, listen to me. If you were involved in this situation, dad and I believe you had reasons and and we believe you were pushed into this in some way. We will stand behind you and protect you and do everything we can to support you and get you the help that that you need to get past this and be okay. So if you did it, Please just tell us what happened. And I would harp on that (laughs) until I was certain that he did not do it or she for that matter. There is no part of me that would have had all those silent days in between when accused all the way to trial. I would never have had a day that I didn't say, hey, (laughs) (laughs) how you feeling today? Do you feel like you have any other ideas as to what may have happened to say that kid Ben? (laughs) You know, like, I just don't think I am. And maybe that I don't know if that makes me a bad mom or not. I don't know. But I couldn't let it go. I'd be afraid I'd almost badger the witness into confessing (laughs) because I'd be like, if you just tell me, we'd get you help to the point where I feel like my kid would be like, all right, fine. I did it. (laughs) Just let me eat my dinner in peace. Like I, I would I would lean so much further that way. Then the ignorance is bliss. Let's just all say silent. Let's not ask any questions. This house doesn't operate that way, though. The barber house. They, uh, Andy has built the house on secrets. Mm-hmm, which is key. Let me ask you this, Paul. Can, can the barbers, if they had had a conversation with Jacob in which he did say, yeah, he pushed me and pushed me and pushed me and pushed me and I finally cracked. Could Lori or Andy be, be put on the stand against their son? I know you can't for husband and wives, but... Would I don't you know. have to testify against your kid? I don't know if that extends to to, to like nuclear family members or, or what. Um, I mean, I kind of think it doesn't because why do we all know that it's husband and wives? 
why, why would, weird. yeah, right. Why, why would that protection exist, but blood would not? But if you're, if you were subpoenaed against like a, a, a sibling or, or a cousin or something, I mean, you, you do have to tell the truth, don't you? I mean, I don't think you get to call. I don't have to tell <laughs> rule, <laughs> right? I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, there's the fifth, so you don't incriminate yourself. Right, but that doesn't there's apply. There's the husband-wife rule, so you don't, you cannot incriminate your spouse. But that's a, that's a state by state kind of thing. But I don't know that that goes to your children. So maybe you. Andy, being a lawyer, maybe you don't ever ask because you could be put on the stand. Is that a possibility? And me, as the silver lining lawyer, doesn't know that, and well, that, I just ask my kid every day. I mean, that's a be- that's a very better call Saul kind of thing, right? Don't tell me. I can't defend you if you tell me more than I ask you. Is kind of a better call Saul approach to things. Which I kind of right? thought defense lawyers work the don't they, I, mm, I thought they worked the other way. Like tell me every single thing that could possibly ever come out so that I can have a defense. Oh, but, well, come out is one thing, but in terms of like the incriminating details or whatever, the less they know of that stuff, the better. Is, is from what I understand, at least from TV. <laughs> My TV practice. I like that. Like I like that we went to law school on TV, and so that's like all we have. Or like one time on Perry Mason, grueling twenty when, years of when TV Tori watching. Spelling gave her testimony on nine hundred two one zero. That's all we have. I don't know. Right. That's so funny. So before we get to the very end of episode seven and the and the big like whoa moment, can we talk about just each parent and Jacob and where we stand? at the end of these episodes. Okay. Let's talk about Andy. Where's his mind? What do you predict for episode eight for him? Andy, for the first time now, feels like he's he's lost control because of something that blindsided him, the Job business. And now he is trying to reassert control, which explains why when he said, I want to put Sarah on the stand, son says, nope. And he says, you don't count anymore. That's him needing to control the situations. And so he mentally, I think, is still driving the machine, you know, uh, and, and and thinking that they can get through this as long as they don't get any more Job-type bombs dropped on them. Can I ask you, do you think that that lashing out of Jacob and saying, you don't, you don't count anymore, your comments don't count, do you think that that was cutting off his nose to spite his face in terms of like, how are you sitting there saying, we're, we're trying to save you, we're trying to keep you a whole human being, oh, by the way, you don't matter, you don't count, you know, that kind of stuff. Does it, does it, did it undermine everything he was trying to do? The mission is to keep his son out of jail. And he's trying to use all the weapons that he can to do that. That being said, I think getting his ass kicked by his student that day might have put a lot of salt in the wound. Mm-hmm. And when you say that, you're saying ha- having Neil been, you know, taking Andy to task in the courtroom. Basically. Really just wrecked his mind. And and again, this is going back to Andy's tendency to lash out. Yeah. L- Andy's temper. No one in that room was like, Andy, we've never heard you raise your voice at Jacob before. In a way that made me feel like, mm, dad's said shit before. Dad's gotten pissed before. Dads are saying shit all the time. <laughs> I'm just saying that that in the whole who has a temper in this whole situation and who could have done something in this situation, Andy has proven. And that's important because of the nurturing of Jacob. Is it the murder gene? Is it the background and all that kind of stuff, DNA seeping in? Or is it the nurture? And when we say that, we're, we're making the assumption that the nurturing was good and happy, but there's no reason to think that 
because Andy is not a happy dad. He's not somebody who necessarily wouldn't have lashed out. Right. Could it be nature? Could it be nurture? Yeah, it could be either. And also, dad's kind of aggressive. We never, we didn't get to see them operating as a normal family, except for like one morning. Which the mom was pretty in his face about those. Like, I know it's silly about the vocab words, but, but was intense. And do you remember the other word too? When Jacob was talking about the books they were reading and he said, mom made me already read the book that I have to do for like next month or something like that. Like he already had it done. It just made me think that she was pretty intense too. Well, she's a she's a headmistress, right? Dude, you know my kids knew the alphabet by the time they were three. They could spell their names. They're saying their stuff because I'm a teacher too. And I get it. But it doesn't mean the household was not intense. Speaking of Lori, before yep. we go, we got to talk about the we big to talk convo about in Lori. the kitchen. Now you have been doing a really good job, Paul, of laying it out the whole time that Lori was losing her mind. Like like sands through an hourglass, there goes Lori's mind. <laughs> right. She comes out and says it. I don't believe him. That was pretty pivotal stuff. It sounds like regardless of whatever happens, Caroline and I kind of assume that this story, this, this family is destroyed at this point, whether through death or disappearance or something, but they do not exist as the three-person barber family. Ever again. Ever again. Mm-mm. But assuming that they did, they wouldn't anyway, because she, I don't think, wants to have anything to do with Andy anymore. Right. Because of the lo- the lies. Mm-hmm. That statement kind of detaches her from Jacob, where I don't know what, how that's going to shake out, you know, in terms of like, well, I don't believe him. What does that mean? Does that mean I don't have a son anymore? Does that mean... Or our supposition that Lori could take Jacob and like drive away into the hills, I think is off the table with that statement because that would have been in the case that she saw they were losing the case and she firmly believed Jacob didn't do it. And she had the backing of Dr. Vogel that he was a good kid, a typical kid and this, he didn't do it. And so therefore Lori in a moment of desperation drives off with Jacob, right? Mm -hmm. The disappearance portion. I don't think that can happen now that Lori has said, I don't believe him. I think he did it. Mm-hmm. I think that goes to the drowning him in the bathtub. Yeah. Killing him. Right. Shooting him. Something is going to happen where she is going to honestly believe that she is saving someone else from him. And if this has like a circus ending where if the mobster was sent to protect really Jacob or maybe Lori, I don't know, he could get involved killing one of the other two. Mm. Because if someone in the family was hurting one of the other people and he saw this, you know, through his binoculars and his Lincoln or whatever, and he comes in there, shoots one of them, the other one ends up dead anyway, and just Andy's left. You could see how this would be like, how Mm. that could spiral out. Okay, Paul, this just popped into my brain and I feel like it could be. We left Jacob with this idea that Sarah may be called on the stand, right? Yeah. And we've said that Sarah is the last possible link of like normalcy as far as Lori and Andy are concerned. Mm -hmm. They have put all their eggs in her basket that somehow she is the key. And we've seen Jacob lash out at Sarah on text. We've seen it, yep. What happens if Lori gets wind that Jacob is saying something threatening towards Sarah and in her mama bear compassion and concern for Sarah now, she feels like she has to stop Jacob. Because it's been set up that Sarah's the target. That's who they were talking about. Sarah mm-hmm. taking the stand, him saying no, Andy saying yes. Jacob's going to do whatever he can to stop her from having to go on the stand, in my opinion, which is going to be a lot of threatening. 
Mm-hmm. And I think Lori, I think that almost has to happen in person. And I could see that is where Lori maybe just like does something as simple as like pushing him down the stairs or doing something to physically stop him from yelling at Sarah or something like that. That's when it all just falls apart. Game of Thrones, they say women use poison. I, but I think it would be a defensive thing. Mm-hmm. So meaning she didn't pre-plan it. She, she's not going to shoot him with a gun. because She's not going to have a gun. But something where she physically sees that Jacob is is enraged, angry, and she sees it in his face and realizes, as his mom, I got to snuff him out. I got to Jeff Probst snuff <laughs> his torch. I mean, we're we're basically predicting that in one way or another, Lori ends Jacob in episode eight. I think so. I think so. And then I think that she probably takes a bunch of pills. Okay. That's what I think. Either that or do you remember the you remember the smiley faces at the beginning? And we talked about someone's in a mental ward. How are you feeling today? Yeah, yeah. That's Lori is in there. Okay. He was at that hospital. That's where we sort of saw that sign. Yeah, because they don't give any context to seeing that. It's just the first image that they show us, but then they shift to something else right after that. And basically the, the, the format of the show is to show you the ending first. Right, all of the So then you can't discount those smiley faces no. as it's not the ending. No. Shit. That's what I'm going with. You guys, I have not seen eight and I have managed to steer clear of all recaps or writing or anything of Defending Jacob. I haven't seen anything. So if that's how it turns out, I am going to do like a victory lap around the house dancing like a chimpanzee (laughs) because because that feels right now, doesn't it? It feels good. The hitman's just a red herring. Feels manageable for one episode. Yeah, because yeah. we only have one left. Well, I, listeners, I'm hoping you guys are enjoying defending Jacob and that you are coming up with your own predictions. We have to talk about that last scene with Leonard. Did you expect it, Paul? WTF? Does it even come out at any point? Personally, I think that is going to be the thing that makes it all worse is that all this other stuff where the barbers get destroyed in some way happens for no reason. Mm-hmm. And it comes out that, you know, this this note gets found at some point because I'm this seems very like suicide note to me. It does. To you me know, now. yeah. So, I mean, if we start episode eight and we see Leonard's dead at some point, not a shock. <laughs> <laughs> not a shock either. However, go with this one, which would be more heart wrenching. OK, which one? All that stuff we, we hear happened with the barbers, right? What I just laid out. The the trial stops. The assumption is that Jacob did, in fact, do it. Yeah. And um, and Leonard is seen sliding that note into a shredder. Does that hurt more? Or we see it go into the, the Chekhov's garbage can of the knife. Leonard just tosses it in there and it's never to be found again. Or is it more painful that... It goes the other way. Leonard is dead. The note is found. There's a feverish call to the barber home to say, it's all over. He confessed. He committed suicide. But Lori and Jacob are dead. Uh, I think B, because then you have the, everyone knows, everyone knows that, that, that they did this to you. You know, they put you through this and your family winds up however they're going to wind up. And, and there was no reason for it. Knowing that, because so, we know that Andy survives, I think that would explain a lot of the devastation that, that we seem to see in these flash forward 
with the grand jury. I am going to go that the worst scenario is that Leonard's alive. Lori and Jacob are gone. Jacob is not exonerated. Andy knows he didn't do it. And now we can have season two of Chris Evans hunting Leonard, who is alive and in another town. A boy is dead. Like you could have season two with that. I really want to see this end in one in this next scene, though. <laughs> You're like, he, he just put his hands on his hips like, Machine Gun Daily says no. <laughs> exactly. The way that Andy is so confused at the grand jury. What's he there for? The closure would be there. You know, he would be sad about his wife and his kid, but closure would be there. That the killer was known and dead in the scenario of suicide. There seems to still be that le- that level of confusion of like, I know my son didn't do it, but who the fuck did? And and like he he's dead, and like I, maybe I still have to defend Jacob. Defending Jacob season two is trying to find the real killer. All right, so that does bring us to our final two questions. We seem to know who <laughs> killed Ben at this point, but the question of why is Andy on the stand for the grand jury is still a little fuzzy. The obstruction of justice does feel obvious, but it doesn't feel like a very compelling you know, kind of thing to call back to over and over again. Well, what do you think? Maybe he maybe he does what you say. Maybe he does hunt down Leonard Pats on his own. I don't think that's why he's on the grand jury, because I think that, that's got to be a whole thing that has to happen. I, for me, it's got to be that he was part of that scuffle. Or maybe that he says Jacob did fall down the stairs, but can't know who did what to the who now. There's something ambiguous about their deaths. And like, and you said that from the beginning about whether or not, you know, they walk in and Andy's standing over two dead bodies and nobody right. can figure exactly how it happened and put together. Well, the, the fact that he's together. not wearing a jumpsuit kind of suggests that. Is that how it goes? If you're at a grand jury, they don't know. You don't, as a defendant, you don't have to wear a jumpsuit. Well, but if you were in custody, I don't know. I mean, no, he, Jacob isn't wearing a jumpsuit. That's true. I don't, I don't think they could do that because that would sway the jury. Sure. So sure. the confusion level leads me to believe that the case cannot have been closed. It, it just, they, they're not going to get this letter. Somehow they're not going to get it that Leonard did it. And that is just going to, because that's what's going to make everybody crazy. If they had the closure that Leonard did it, I just don't, it would be, you know, it's that, twi- it's that twilight zone of the man putting all the books in the bunker just to step on his own glasses and not be able to read them. Yep. But what if the glasses fall on the ground and then you somehow you don't know whether or not they were broken or something? Like, does that twist your belly any harder or do you have to see that? Or does that lead to like season two of The Twilight Zone? Did he break his glasses? <laughs> like, you know, I don't know. You know, for me, Chris Evans is a big enough star to carry this over to being to a solo season by himself to now try to defend his family's honor. And we've got J.K. Simmons. To still play off of Chris. Yep. So to me, I'm looking at a setup for season two. Sorry, Machine Gun. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, we will tell. We will be able to tell in a very short amount of time. Yes, because already Friday is the finale. Bah, very bah, exciting. Bah. Thank you guys so much for listening. This is Caroline. This is Machine Gun. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.